This episode is sponsored by Monograph and ArcIT. You'll hear more about them later on in the episode. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry of architecture is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. Disrupted. listeners. Hello, Janine. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Disruptors. So this week on Practice Disrupted, we are going a little bit deeper into technology to talk broadly. That sounds like an oxymoron to go deeper yet talk broadly, but that's what we're doing about anything from the IoT or the Internet of Things, digital architecture, NFTs in particular, I feel is a buzzword that everybody is kind of trying to figure out what that means for them in this space. But more specifically, what architects should be paying attention to in this area. And I am so incredibly thrilled to welcome Wendy to the show. And this is a connection that we made, I believe, over Twitter. Right, Wendy? So that um, <laughs> that just goes to show you that connections can be made online. I was trying to get up to speed on Wendy's credentials and found her on LinkedIn. And oh my goodness, I was so blown away by the depth of experience from an MRC at Princeton to commercial real estate uh, analysis and investment at MIT. And then, of course, a doctorate of design and computational innovation at Harvard graduate school of design. So and you didn't even cover her time at the Bartlett school yet. There so. we go. And the and time at the <laughs> Bartlett school. I I think I was a little intimidated when I looked at your LinkedIn honestly, Wendy. So I'm super excited to just learn a little bit more about your background and of course talk about how you made this interesting jump between architecture and computational design and where you're at now in your career. Yeah. Um, so first of all, thank you for in- inviting me. Um, and yes, the organic conversations that Evelyn and I had through Twitter and everywhere else, um, I think really helped understand like where both of us are. And I think in terms of like where it all first began, I, I would say I was probably in the generation um, that really was coming out of the kind of core understanding of how computers are part of our early developmental education. So I have to say, I'm not American. So I did do a lot of my formal education abroad, and then like a lot of it also in in New York. So my kind of influence in how computational and digital architecture came in really kind of started with a curiosity of how do we integrate design and technology into our everyday lives, kind of speak. And so I also had the pleasure and also um, auspiciousness to work with many mentors, such as Jesse Reiser. You know, currently I'm still in touch a lot with Greg Lynn because of motorcycles. And a lot of these kind of early players in the paperless studios at Columbia. I had an undergraduate uh, education at the Barnard program. And so there was a little bit of transition, but not really that much that kind of cross-pollination. So I would say like my 
early interests in architecture and digital design really came in with digital fabrication, just the craft of making things using digital tools, and then applying technique of design uh, that kind of functions within the realm of um, digital fabrication. And then I think it evolved, I want to say like maybe 10 or 15 years ago, when I started kind of looking at reality capture, looking at ways that we could really kind of push for more um, kind of handheld platform urbanism discussions. Um, so now it's at the stage of, I didn't know what I was looking at when I, I was at my, doing my doctoral, which to now kind of have the foresight is kind of saying, like, oh, you know, that's, that's really like early accounts of blockchain like research. So yeah, so that, that's kind of how, uh, in a nutshell, it all came together. Can we back it up even just a little bit further, Wendy, and have you talk about kind of your interest in architecture and then where these opportunities came to light? Because I, I, I mean, obviously there was the paperless studio, but I, I feel like not an, like not many people were looking for those type of opportunities at that time. They were like much more rooted in, in practice for practice sake. That's true. Yeah. What was that interest for you to like, first of all, pursue architecture as an underlying theme and then kind of the evolution into technology from a personal journey? I think like within architecture, what as a, as a young um, student, I, I've always kind of looked at, for instance, like one of my favorite building is actually a very ornate building. Uh, it's the Woolworth building. It was probably like I, I was very interested in the building because we were taking, I forgot, it was like one core uh, art history studio or a seminar um, that we were all supposed to take in undergrad. And and this is obviously coming from the more undergraduate architecture education and like theory education. One of the biggest things that really kind of struck me when we had to do the site visit and you had to analyze and you had to draw it and you had to draw it like by hand, you had to draw it, you know, even on the computer was, um, was like when Cass Gilbert really started designing what people thought were the gargoyles of the Woolworth inside and exterior. There's a lot of kind of technique and craftsmanship that comes into um, just any sort of architectural production. And I think part of that fascination into how things were made really kind of made me um, very kind of drawn to how architects practice as um using its tools, but also kind of how it impacts local kind of cultural and society and, and also economic growth. At that time, you know, the Woolworth building was quite significant, not because of its, um, only because of its planet H type of um, kind of structure, but also how it became a landmark and one of the tallest buildings in that area. So I think as a architectural landmark, but also beyond that larger discussion of like what it is as as like the way that it was built I think the way it was built really fascinated me more and so within the practice of architecture I think that's really part of the beauty of using tools within the design process and I also had the opportunity to work at various firms um, that really inspired me to push the digital application of tools um, working for Prix's office was a great delight. I'm still in touch with Pricks and other directors there. And I think one of the biggest discussions at Pricks's office in Vienna and also the Angivante, which is a University of Applied Arts um, in Vienna, 
was that Zaha was there. You have a lot of different studios. Greg was there. And also um, just like visiting professors that really push the field of architecture using digital tools. And I think in the case of Frank Geary, for instance, it's quite evident that with building his buildings, he needed also to kind of parlay the larger discussion of establishing um, a software company that could build his buildings. So I think these kind of discussions really opened my eyes on how architecture as a field could be both um, kind of pushing for entrepreneurship as one aspect of it, but the other is also creating opportunities within technology and how does that integrate into the built environment or even just the building itself. Those were kind of one of the kind of pinnacle discussions that of like, how do you impact data creation in buildings, especially with Geary Tech and like DP, especially digital project, um, early stages of that were really about basing it off of Katia, Katia and like, how do you actually generate forms through data and spreadsheets? And it's not really um, core to maybe even producing in terms of just formal explorations. Uh, and then from that progression also, my curiosity spiked because I think classically speaking, even at undergraduate level, I did like architecture and economics. And then I did during my master's, I did master and urban policy and planning. And so a lot of times accumulation of information through not only our key uh, industry, but also from outside of the industry really helped me can understand how to navigate or understand how other people perceive architecture. And um, the more recent uh, degree, which is obviously my doctor of design degree, I also was very fascinated with how um, the intellectual property uh, in, in law kind of plays a role in how we design design objects, uh, whether it be computer-aided design or how we distribute manufacturing in, in, in the world. So Janine and I both have a lot of degrees. I feel like you have a lot, a lot of degrees. <laughs> have you pursued that path because there is no way to get that education in practice anywhere? Or, you, or ha- is just academia just like a better way to create a structure and create and get those connections in order to pursue that subject? I don't think like academia is better or worse. I think I, I had an interview a couple of years ago where I actually mentioned this. It's funny because I actually... I am sure my students who listen to this will end up, you know, cringing and, and probably all the deans out there. But I, w- I was actually not into school, if that makes any sense. Um, I, I found that my formative education in architecture. So I graduated in three years in undergrad. I just had the opportunity to do all my studios and everything and all the, you know, the credits that's required. And I just finished in three years, mostly because there were several tries and tribulations of like how I didn't feel like the actual formal education of architecture provided me the groundwork that I needed to understand how to practice in a manner that really executes my own curiosities. And I think largely speaking in at least uh, most East coast uh, schools, they kind of, have a very traditional sense of um, playing out, you know, especially if you you do the, the similar line, lineage of um, education I do, which is you, you kind of learn a lot of history theory, you apply it, you kind of go work, and then 
you know, when you're in the field, it's generally, it's client facing. It's, and I, I do that a lot also with my own practice and also with client work. And I think there's a difference between, um, I, and I think there, that's where the chasm comes in. There's a difference between practicing architecture and really being able to execute it at, at a fellowship or writing or even like just as uh, an installation or an exhibition that really provokes certain types of topics that I think um, sometimes just a day-to-day grunt of um, doing built work, it doesn't give you. And I think that's probably why I've always gone back, or if not, I have a, a toe in like teaching, for instance, or even more than a toe sometimes. And And I think I've always struggled to also personally try to find, quote unquote, the right space for what my position is in architecture. Um, And especially when it comes to a lot of the work that engages with digital technology or, you know, how do you actually integrate policy discussions within a data landscape that brings it back to architecture I think now we are at a space with a lot of institutions that really try to engage on that discussion. But I would say even like 10 years, 2011, 2012, when I was um, pushing for the AD journal issue on digital property, I actually co-wrote it with my advisor at that time. He was very kind of reluctant on uh, embracing the idea that architects or you know, the AEC industry would ever consider a blockchain-like technology. Like, he he really didn't understand. Maybe because he was a theorist, maybe there's other kind of underlying interests that he wasn't understanding. But I do think, like, other than my law professors, who really embraced the idea of, oh, yeah, like, you know, blockchains would totally take over the world. And it's, and also Martin Bechtold, my other uh, second reader and advisor, uh, who's now still the director of the DDES program, he was like, oh yeah, like Boeing has been doing this for decades. Like they need to know where that screw is being distributed and they have to document it and it has to be on a ledger. And, you know, there's a lot of liability issues. Um, so I guess it's like, it depends on who you speak to, but I would say it's like a fairly niche type of discussion to have architects or designers are so embracing. I mean, I could probably count um, how many colleagues are really into this um, kind of world. And so I think a lot of us do kind of communicate with each other. But also the other question is, uh, where do these architectural individuals end up working? Do they work at traditional practices? Or do they start their own? Or do they actually work at industries outside of architecture that requires a lot of computational design? And I think it's mostly the latter. Um, I would say a lot of my colleagues that were really even like a decade older than me that are, you know, in the field of computational, they, they end up working at least have a stint at big athletic companies. I'm not going <laughs> to put names there, but like, you know, they, they, they lead their design computational team for, you know, not only architectural work. And and I think other fields find what architects are learning in the digital and computational and also digital fabrication and materiality exploration. Those other companies are the ones that are coming to architects and being like, oh, you know, you have such a critical investigative process of how to understand material in a computational manner. 
why don't we apply those systems thinking into our firms or corporations? You know, like for instance, I'm just going to throw one or two names out there. I mean, like nervous system, right? Their entire practice is computational, but it's also highly um, kind of ornamental and like mathematical and also like is inspired by nature. And a lot of their work, they've been working mostly with uh, companies like New Balance or like Adidas or, you know, like other kind of companies that are not traditionally kind of looking into you know our own field of architecture. And I don't know if that's just because our own field is um, kind of more, I don't know, like risk adverse in, in using it, or are there just because um, there's just a lot more issues in, in developing that, that narrative to, to push the field in that, in that manner? I don't know. I, I genuinely am very curious when I go to conferences and also talk to other colleagues on like, is it just because the adoption of uh, new technologies is difficult or is it just there is kind of a digital virtual world expanding that's very difficult to understand? I, I know that for a fact, like colleagues that I, I work with at Autodesk, for instance, or even Adobe, they had um, a company that had uh, a more of an XR, um, it was more like VR slash XR uh, augmented reality goggle that also attached to um, a construction helmet. That that company like went uh, under uh, a couple years ago. But the colleague that worked at the company that worked on developing the 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 technology for the goggle itself ended up working at Adobe for a few years in their XR department, and now they're at uh, Meta working essentially for Facebook and developing virtual worlds. And so I, I do think that there are a lot of technological crossovers that could go into tech tech companies. And I think tech companies are the ones that are more interested in pushing that larger question. But I'm still very curious on why, you know, other than the Frank Gehrys of the world, <laughs> why are we not pushing for um, more exploratory. I mean, there are a lot of labs. So I, I did, for my doctoral, I did do a lot of research. And part of that research was looking at what other companies out there was actually pushing other than Frank Gehry. So there, again, it's probably like a handful. It's a handful of companies that are really trying to push that larger discussion of digital creation and like a lab-like think tank-like within uh, a studio atmosphere. So... I, I don't know. Does that does that go on a tangent? Does does that help, or does that like? It does. It does. It, it might. I mean, I I think it's like a a plus and to everything that you um, like. Um, uh, I I mean, I, I think it's slow adoption and everything else. I you know back to the original question. It was just interesting to me that like you haven't necessarily found a place in practice and academia, so you continuous you continue to bridge the two, right? And it's still. It's still, frankly, unclear like where where it's going to emerge, but these outside forces, and I think that's why we talk about things on Practice Disrupted, that there are outside forces that are kind of demanding these things or finding greater interest in these things than even um, we are within our, our practices. And, and what does that mean ultimately for the future of the profession and where we're headed? Yeah, I mean, like it's very clear, like the, even 
seasoned professionals who have been practicing and also trying to find their ground. Like Greg is the CEO of Piaggio Fast Forward. And, you know, for decades and years, he's been pushing for such innovative ways of integrating materiality into the practice of architecture, you know, using uh, ways to build boats, um, sails, and into kind of like playfully uh, engaging with materiality with you know, residential and commercial work. But still at the end of the day, like I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing. I think it's like a tech, a huge technology company is the one that's pushing for what he's interested in. And it's not, you know, uh, the, another firm that's fascinated with like how, how we could integrate these technologies or employ these individuals. One question that I have is I, I know that your career has kind of been about trying to find this place that you want to work that meets your expectations and hope for practice. And you've kind of perpetually been looking for that. But what is that space? And if you can define it, like, I think you're starting to talk about it in the way that you're defining like an incubator lab collaborative studio, but what can you more succinctly describe like what it is that you're looking for? Yeah. So, I mean, within the past, I mean, the pandemic has actually exacerbated a lot of that larger digital um, discussion, and especially for industries that are more traditional, like real estate, it's also kind of embraced multi-platform and also even like technology in a, a much quicker pace. For me, I think like realistically speaking, I think my book uh, manuscript really pushed me to break down these thoughts, <laughs> which is what a little bit of what you're asking. But I think also in the back end of that, I also interviewed a lot of industry experts to kind of buffer and understand a little bit more on the core of what their own theses are. Um, and so I think like I spoke with like Saskia Sassen, Minerva Tantako, Andrew Witt, who's still a GSD of, of whom I also worked with before on a robotics project and other mentors such as Greg Lynn and like Jesse Reiser is also writing the forward. But I think what's key here are all these individuals, whether or not they're working for object scale or their policymakers like Minerva, who's now actually the chief technology, uh, she was a chief technology officer, the initial one uh, during the Bloomberg days. And also she's currently the chief um, executive AI person at the NYU Institute. I think all of these individuals are trying to engage in a kind of territorial and infrastructural discussion. And that's kind of where I realized what my research and my interests actually are more broadened in in actually um, understanding how it could be applied in various scales is it's more of an infrastructural discussion. And it's, again, infrastructurally speaking, it could be about the internet as a digital and invisible um, network. It exists and it's a tissue in the current state of technology and also even the current state of the world, especially first world countries. It is a connective tissue of how all of these powers are coming together. More critical to that discussion for me, at at least now at this stage of my research interests and also kind of looking at how like web three and, and like, you know, just digital worlds are built. These new infrastructures are intended where um, a lot of data centers and also commercial buildings and like how architects need to integrate new forms of contemporary space that are design oriented, but also intent oriented that encompasses an accessibility to the internet. And I think that has made me realize other things, which is, for instance, Minerva was the policymaker at the time that really pushed Link NYC to happen. So she's writing a guest essay on that. But Link NYC, for those who are not 
from New York or in New York is very important. It's a critical infrastructural system because I think most people know them as like ad posts on, in Manhattan, which has like tidbit information on the side of the streets and also where you could charge your phone. But it's designed also to offer um, individuals who might be walking down the street and feel unsafe and who are harassed and could go there and get free internet, but also could report their unsafe situation and press help or for homeless people to be able to connect with other people or, you know, kind of handy accessible pod systems where you could actually roll your wheelchair onto it and be able to plug in. And so there's a lot of kind of integral design opportunities that not only are you like in an urban scale or in, in a, in a like kind of architectural scale, but it's also thinking about how we connect cities. And I think talking to Saskia Assassin really helped also because, you know, she's very interested in that larger power authority and territory discussion on like how urban systems are connected through a larger tissue. And obviously with Greg, one of the larger discussions is also like how data plays and makes a role into our day-to-day systems using robotics with the Gita robot or like with anything else. Um, So I think what I've realized over the years and like how we're driving technology and also how we're integrating systems uh, into planning is that all of these little parts of how we're designing is part of a larger system. It is architecture and it it might not be seen historically as a, as a system that, you know, it's, you're building a house with certain type of materiality or, you know, you're in LA and you're being, building an ADU and, you know, it's in some, someone's backyard, but it is part of a larger infrastructural system that is important regardless of how you interact with it. And I do think like NFTs um, and blockchain like systems are part of that system that needs to be clarified. And I think right now we're still in the early stage of um, believing that you know, creations in, as a digital asset is still used as a manner of cultural ledger. Um, but it could be beyond that um, accessibility issue of maybe the focus should be not on digital objects as art objects, but maybe how does architecture and real estate use these uh, forms of system to be more transparent so that traditionally disenfranchised communities or BIPOC communities who have less access to understanding, for instance, the very convoluted and complicated process of ownership and transactions in traditional real estate could actually use smart contracts, right? Which in a sense is not that different from a digital ledger that's storing something in a metabank somewhere or or using, you know, any other kind of blockchain-like systems. So let's kind of break down these topics because like, so when you are talking about a digital ledger, that is actually, I feel like blockchain and for instance, cyber currency is like, often like linked hand in hand, right? But can you help us distill down some of the definition of what these are, like you did with the ledger, and then talk about why the traditional architect should care? Yeah, I think I think the beauty of the hybridization of digital goods and physical purchase in, in a world where all of our transactions is more or less digital, essentially, you know, like whether or not you want to call it meta, whether you call it internet, essentially, it's, um, I I think meta is just a new rebranding of how we're engaging on web two and web one. It's not really that different. I mean, web XO is really one of the chapters I've been kind of engaging on for like chapter five and four. 
um, in the book, which is like, okay, look, if you're thinking of transactions online or on your credit card, it is more or less kind of broken down in a system where whatever you're buying ends up being documented and you have a, essentially, you could print it out, but it's also a digital ledger at some sort. It's probably not as traditionally, it, it's not viewed the same manner as blockchain because I think um, the blockchain system is something that's, it, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to corrupt. It's transaction-based. It's also really about, um, if you want to break it down for an anti-gimmick application of the terms, I would say, like, if you're physically going to store or having it mailed to you and you're looking to buying something on your credit card, in a sense, you could see whatever you buy through the transaction of your credit card as some sort of a ledger. I think the more kind of uh, the idiosyncrasy within a blockchain, however, it facilitates um, a type of immutable ledger that also has a process of recording transactions and assets within a business network. And within that business network, I think in what how architects and designers could have the responsibility of engaging with and integrating into our day-to-day design, I think, this is my own personal opinion, is that there are ways perhaps, and this is where I think there needs to be a change or an evolution on how the AEC industry would push forward, is to have a more transparent process of building, period. Not BIM in the sense that, you know, you have uh, building information technology where multiple, multiple players come together in building that building, let's say. But beyond that system is that integrating an actual blockchain-like system where you're actually going to integrate the informal workers that are building your building, subcontractors that really have no agency in building your building. Being transparent in the sense, not only on the finance terms of how distributions of uh, trading purposes work in finance within a blockchain-like system um, is integrated in the building technology. How much is the bolt? How much is the uh, window frame? How much is like the day-to-day? In, um, it, what, what happens if the AC breaks down? What is a rigmarole that you have to go to like find the actual general contractor to actually you know, go back on site and like fix it? All of these would be documented, not because, you know, in a, in a traditional sense, we don't have it documented. We do. But it's never in the sense that it's so transparent that you could actually see the financial breakdowns where, you know, the whole community could incorporate a distribution financial distribution system that would say like a wood supplier and a a steel contractor could also build out the same system and and transparency and see what the drywall guy is actually, you know, kind of in the bid for. And not only because of liability issues, which a lot of times is great, but also because there are individuals who build our buildings that have no agency. And I do think in a practical sense and maybe in a transparency sense and also as a, as a way to celebrate the workforce, a lot of the invisible labor could invisible labor could be highlighted perhaps, and this might be you know idealistic or utopian. It could be hi- highlighted through maybe a blockchain-like system. And so that larger system is above and beyond you know just NFTs. You know, and 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 that's where I I think you know some people don't really understand like well why do we need blockchains why do we need right NFTs? Let's take a break from this conversation to talk about our sponsor of this episode, Monograph. We're proud to partner with Monograph because they are helping to transform the practice of architecture one design studio at a time. Tired of using dated and clunky software to manage your firm. 
Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your project stands today? Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With their awesome Money Gantt, you can immediately understand project performance across your entire firm portfolio. Need to adjust your projects week to week? Their new tool, Resource, allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Be proactive with Monograph. Our friends at ArcIT are helping architecture firms with their technology solutions, including fighting back against ransomware and cybersecurity attacks. They recently told us about one San Francisco-based design firm they help who had three ransomware attacks in a span of six months. Their latest hit took their generic IT provider over seven days to recover the data. Yikes. Imagine not having access to your project data for over seven days. For a mid-sized firm of 40 people, that's a lot of people not having the ability to do work on their projects. Cyber attacks are a growing challenge in the hybrid world, and they are costly. The firm leadership estimated that the pure financial cost of the business was just over 100K, not accounting for the tremendous mental pressure the team experienced during the attack and subsequent recovery. However, it's important to mention that proactive architecture firms can get ahead of these type of technology threats. As you consider your technology infrastructure needs for your business, be sure to check out ArcIT. They're a trusted IT provider who is in the business of helping architecture firms, and they offer tailored solutions for design studios, small, midsize, and large. ArcIT is offering a free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment to help you determine how secure your business is. During the assessment, ArcIT will help you identify your top three highest risk areas in your business. Speaking of risks, ArcIT is also sharing some helpful tips with practice-disrupted listeners that you can implement tomorrow to ensure your business is secure from cybersecurity threats. Their latest tip is to secure your endpoints, your Windows or Mac OS device with business-grade antivirus, URL filtering solution, and OS Plus application patch management solution. Tune in next week to hear the next tip from ArcIT. To take your security solutions further, contact ArcIT at www.getarcit.com pd to set up your free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment or speak to them about custom solutions for your design firm. I always had this romantic idea, and I've said this actually several times this season, and I, a few listeners have responded to it, but like of creating an IMBD essentially for a building though, like, right, like the movie database where you have like down to the grip, like everybody involved in that building and kind of their role in it. And I was like, there is, there is no, there is not enough, not only transparency, but like, like, um, there's not enough openness and kind of sharing to like give everyone accounts, everybody like an accountable role on a building, like, you know, like, like, and and now I'm going on a little bit of a tangent, but design awards always list for architects, 
they always list maybe one or two people that are involved. It doesn't necessarily stream down to the entire team, right? So how would we ever provide a mechanism in which you can actually see everybody who's contributed to the like the intricacies of building a building and the role that they played in it? Yeah, and, and that was actually one of the explorations I had um, for my Adidas. And I had built something out. At that time, again, I didn't know it was building something that was a blockchain-like system. It was just more like a multimodal, multiplayer um, system. Like if you're all designing one object and it was built on Unity. And then so it was kind of like, okay, how do we then have multiple players come in that's not BIM, but has metadata embedded in a ledger whereby every change you make on the digital model also equated to a like a financial or attribution type of distribution right and some people might not care about getting paid and you know a huge amount but some people would rather have their attribution made public and i think from a lot of i, I did a lot of surveys for um my research and i think over a thousand people most creatives across the board uh, cared more about whether or not they're attributed on a project than like whether or not they're paid excruciating amount. I'm I'm not saying that you shouldn't get paid. I am a huge, I, I every person that has, I've ever worked with, including like a junior intern, has always gotten paid when working with me. And I, I've always been like pushing for this. I'm like, the industry needs to celebrate payment of some sort. Um, I mean, it's probably architecture and fashion is probably the two worst industries when in terms of compensation. But either way, I would say like the larger discussion is again back to the creator having attribution. What happens if a percentile of whatever they're designing gets extracted and reproduced? What do those derivative derivatives look like? And this is more again back to the legal discussion, which is what I'm interested in, which is like when it comes to let's say coding there's a more of a culture of like referencing someone's code and celebrating the fact that I, you know, reverse engineered X and made Y and used your code to develop, I don't know, Z, right? But I think there's, there's kind of, I, I think architecture is still on the, the gamut of design and there's like a lot of egos involved. And so like, there's a lot of that larger discussion that's not discussed. And as you mentioned, Evelyn, like that's part of that issue which is, you know, do you celebrate the whole team because they put so much sweat and tears within it? Or is it about celebrating one or two individuals that really are building that thing or building? And I think, I think as you mentioned, like a lot of competitions and awards do list. But again, I think a lot of firms these days do also kind of celebrate like which engineer uh, firm that they work with. But just because they celebrate like ACOM and ERA working with them, it doesn't mean that they're going to share like the 10 engineers that are also working with them. You know, it's like, here's the brand. And, you know, where, what about the 10 people that also work behind the brand? Right. It makes me think of like, when I've worked on really complicated projects, especially in Revit, where you have multiple people working in the drawing and in the model, I think technology, I mean, it's a really good example of how technology is shifting the way teams operate. Whereas you used to have a room full of draftspeople who were working under um, one architect. Now it's like, there's this level of invisibility, I think that's happens with being in a digital space and 
many different people contributing to the input of developing a model and developing a set of drawings and then bringing it to realization through construction. So I'd love to hear more about your view on how computational design and modeling, your point of view about how that shift and that evolution that we're in is, you know, really making a difference in the way that we practice and what's the unlocked potential of where we could be going with it. Yeah. So I, I, I totally agree, Janine, with what you just mentioned about the amount of work um, and also the integration of various like creators to make it happen. I think one of the biggest discussions that like early Rhino 3D program, if you don't turn on a history, you don't, you never know like who actually worked on the model, right? With, with River, it's a little bit more transparent, I, I would say, like even with like DP. But one of the, 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 two, the two things that don't come together again, unlike working for a law firm, is that you don't get billable hours just because you're a paralegal, right? Like you're not going to, you know, even if the, the principal is making 500 bucks or, you know, 750 or, you know, however much your lawyer costs per hour, and the paralegal is charging you 100, 150 per hour, and you get you know a 15 minute quarterly of an hour build. Architects don't work that way, and I think there it might need to work that way, or maybe it's going to be too expensive. And this is this is another issue that comes into design and architecture is like people always constantly try to underbid each other, and so the quality of work you might be putting too much. Um, essentially time on something, but you actually don't get compensated for it. And then therefore, you know, you have this, again, that issue of, you know, who gets undercut. And usually it's the juniors that do in in the current discussion um, of the field. But I think largely speaking, if we were to push for a more equitable workforce, a larger discussion may be a policy discussion, but I think it's about better protection. And if better protection could come within a blockchain system or a blockchain-like system, then there are ways to use data for social good. There are ways to mitigate larger data distribution in a sense of like how we are using data to govern our day-to-day practice. And that could be through as simple as what lawyers are doing with the billables, but also because there are so many ways that every time you're touching a file, it shows you know, Janine has been working on it for like five hours, but like Jim has only been working it for, you know, 30 minutes. So if Jim has been working for 30 minutes, should Jim get paid less, right? And so these are kind of things. And then, but on top of that, I think there's the difficulty, which is different from like a a constant law practice, which is like, you know, it is more tangible. Sometimes design isn't tangible, right? So just because someone spent, like for, for instance, me, like if I were to have, 3D modeled something. I could probably 3D model something in 15 minutes. Whereas if I gave it to a junior designer, it might take them an hour and a half. doesn't mean the quality is better or worse if either of us are doing it. But like in terms of billable, I might do it way faster just because of experience. And I think the premium that someone actually is paying for is not necessarily the premium of, you know, me spending 15 minutes. It's a premium of like also the decades of education, the experience I'm putting onto something. And I think, I mean, this is again, part of the practice, architects underbid themselves for that exact same reason, because they don't remember sometimes, or just because it's how competitive it is to underbid yourself, they don't remember how much of their previous experience they're putting into their day-to-day and hourly rates. But again, I think it's 
if we were to adapt a new system, not saying that we aren't doing that already, is that how do we form a means of using blockchain-like systems as a cultural ledger, perhaps, to better the society, using cultural ledger as an interpretation of, you know, urban renewal, social integration, and using cultural ledger as a form of currency that promotes invisible labor, but also benefits the community. And I think these are some discussions that don't really get pushed in the WebXO discussion, is that what happens to the digital space when you're actually trying to use architectural, um, again, you know, kind of efforts or ways to think beyond platform urbanism and in integrating better ways of designing space. And I think right now, back to that discussion of like, you know, who's actually using this technology the most, I would say like the lowest hanging fruit of the meta space or the Web 3.0 space has been retail. Corporations are really interested in high engagement, high turnover projects because it's a quick to test out who on the market would actually be using these technologies. Um, and obviously retail engaging individuals and also corporations such as the Nikes out there, such as Adidas and all these other kind of sneaker uh, head related practices is engaging on the future, you know, virtual reality. And also a lot of fashion brands are doing that because I think they have already uh, a day-to-day operation on the, on the ground level. So it's not that difficult to kind of integrate it. Well, you know, how does a buyer actually integrate? And if they were to buy the, the newest vial that, you know, kind of opens up on the digital world, what do they get in the physical world, right? It's it's more of a quid per quo kind of discussion. And it's kind of a little bit difficult when urban cultural ledger is coming up, when you know, a lot of these urban renewal projects takes 20 years to actually establish itself. Then how do we actually engage in a better workforce or a better protection method? I hope that gives you like two scales of economy at least. So these retailers are obviously using NFTs. So so when it comes to architecture practice and thinking about how NFTs are engaging at a policy level, where where should we have our eye on and what are the future potential possibilities? I think like within within the field right now, given, you know, supply chain issues are such a big topic of discussion within construction, within real estate, definitely within architecture, the next, I'm not saying this is the next phase. I think like there is, there's a lot of kind of misunderstanding of using NFTs. I think one of the the key potentials of the NFTs in digital realm is that if you're using gaming as an example, if gaming is centralized on one server, NFTs is decentralizing those skins that you have for your sneaker or, you know, the avatar that you have a different colored hair for into a localized um, community within your data network, right? It could be like on your local computer or it could be on your local data system, whatever you use, your server. And I think realistically speaking, if we're actually pushing that a little bit further and looking at supply chain issues and build actual new building materials as an extensive system, potentially there's a way to also aggregate um, how we're using, you know, how gamers are using NFTs or even how, gamers are actually buying digital objects to a physical world in terms of how we're actually seeing those uh, experiences. So I think in one way of reutilizing this larger discussion of supply chains is that perhaps there's, I think still the easiest for in terms of 
workforce transparency is one thing, but also perhaps there's a way to um, make way for uh, architects to play in to perhaps esports and e-concerts within how we're designing spaces. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, like Travis Scott's Fortnite concert probably was one of the biggest concerts that ever existed because there's like, you know, I did not know Travis Knight had a Fortnite concert. Yeah. Travis Scott had Fortnite. Well, this is like during pandemic. So, okay. So I think like one of the larger discussions is like, you know, it's, it's one of the biggest because like you're, you're having several instances within a cluster of 50, approximately 50 people per cluster on the virtual platform. So you're actually creating decentralized spaces and like multiplying these instances to see the same individual sing or perform. I think what would be very interesting, and this is something that I'm exploring with a few thesis students at the UC architecture program, is that what will happen of reusing physical architectural spaces, especially in Los Angeles, where a lot of these um, spaces will probably get decommissioned, such as movie theaters. Um, there's, there's highly, there's been a huge issue with theaters during the pandemic, but also because how individuals, I would say generation alpha is, um, economically also, it's very interesting economically gen a or gen alpha, not really a gen alpha is going to have the same amount of spending power as boomers. We, you, you and I, and everyone else in the middle have been like the most disenfranchised. We're all Um, SOL. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So generation alpha, however, also has been less interested in going physically to a movie theater, right? So architecturally speaking, the physical building is kind of reduced into streaming services. And so if we have physical buildings that we need to renegotiate that perhaps Travis Scott Fortnite experience, how do we push for those bigger arena kind of experiences? I don't think there's, I, I don't think it's by chance and happenstance that crypto.com is renamed as crypto.com arena, which is what Staples Center used to be called. I, I Yes, there's a lot of money involved, but I also think that there's a larger interest into kind of ways that existing buildings could be repurposed, retrofit, however you want to use it. But also like for instance, in California, gas stations by 2050 probably will be reduced due to California's interest in becoming carbon neutral electric vehicles. What do you do with gas stations? What do you do with car washes? Like, how do you reappropriate existing buildings to integrate new technologies? Um, And I think that's going to, I'm not saying that's a trend prediction, but I do think because concrete, for instance, is 18 to 24 months behind in terms of supply chain supplies, quite literally, there's, there's a backlog of material distribution why not think of existing buildings that are really not being utilized? And if we're going to do that, how, how could architects kind of come back to the physical space and start replanning those spaces for alternative uses? Um, I think that's also another discussion to be had, obviously inspired by like Donald Judd and his Marfa um, buildings, but yes. Does that mean spaces need to be, spaces in the future need to serve a more multifunctional purpose than they ever have? before I, I would say like architects would need to know how to adapt buildings in these physical environments to be engaging or be able to engage in different meta experiences i would say it's not that architects need to i mean obviously a lot of architects through the education of architecture learn to build different types of buildings but i think 
the difference is now architects might need to learn how to physically readapt new technologies into buildings rather than just understand the technology itself. Right. So what's interesting to me and where this conversation is headed is because we've been talking, I've been talking at a very, what I'm understanding right now to be a super rudimentary level of the hybrid practice. And here I was thinking I was so forward thinking. But what (laughs) it really is, is that like, like there will be an ongoing intersection between like the digital experience and how that plays out in the real world. And we just need to be keenly aware of of how every experience is potentially a hybrid experience, one that you've experienced in physical space, but it also like shows up on my phone in a various different ways, or one that like I'm in my computer, but also attending a concert where somebody else might be attending in person. Yeah, I, I would say that. <laughs> I'm really glad you grounded it in those terms to think about the buying power behind Generation Alpha. Let's just briefly define what Generation Alpha is. So what year would you what year are they born? Nine, nine years old to fourteen currently. So by the time they're of age, they would have more financial power than you and I put together. And it's interesting because we are seeing that in the educational experience. I think that's where they are at right now. But like this different academic experience than what many of us experienced coming up. And so basically what you're talking about is that's going to continue into their adult lives and how they think about infrastructure needs. Um, And you gave the example of the movie theater, which I think is a really relevant example, um, especially with the, you know, emergence of streaming platforms. Yeah. I mean, it's also not, it's also ironic that I don't know, for those who are from LA or in LA, the the Egyptian theater currently is bought by Netflix. It's owned by Netflix, right? And classically speaking, I also, I'm always at awe when Culver City is actually built by MGM, right? It's, It's planned by a studio. And these kind of, these these kind of ways of designing cities, I think, are not going to stop, in my opinion. Um, I feel like the bigger tech companies will come back in. And as Janine, you were mentioning, like, I, I don't think the digital is going to go away. I think it's just going to be re- reappropriated in different physical spaces that we engage with. I think, like, in a sense, like, we are in a very crucial moment, at least for architects who are excited about producing hybrid spaces. And that, you know... I mean, I, I didn't go into like the data center discussion of like how inhumane a lot of these data center spaces are, because um, that's also one of the biggest research interests of mine is like, if we're going to integrate decentralized data into our day-to-day living, are there better ways to incorporate um, the architectural practice to um, build sustainable environmental the like cautious footprint of data usage into our day-to-day lives. Um, can we integrate these into our furniture? Can we integrate these into our structural framework of walls, zip walls, structural columns, all of these other discussions? But beyond that, I think we're also in a very crucial moment to thinking about if we're going to have more of these hybridized spaces that are non-traditional in the sense that, you know, you're not only going to a movie theater to watch a movie, but you're also engaging at like different concerts or like, you know, you're you're doing celebrations of other sorts. How do we look at these infrastructures as a matter of how we're contributing to it as a community, right? Accessing the communities that don't traditionally have access to 
but be able to utilize the actual physical space for alternative uses. Um, so yes, it might be viewed as, you know, one space has multifunction, but I think it's more important to kind of say that when we're not only designing for the 1%, there are other ways to engage a community to utilize a space. And I think that's very crucial if we're able to take the next step on designing spaces that are also about accessing communities that don't generally have um, access to these spaces. Uh, so it's like, you know, when you're designing a museum, there's a lot of discussions of like, how do you make a museum space accessible, not only in terms of um, understanding the content, but also being able to encompass uh, an eight-year-old child to an 80-year-old grandma that's bringing the child there to understand the content that's within that space, right? So I think within designing the hybridized storytelling uh, of a space, using digital devices obviously will not be a surprise, but also like how do you play up the augmented reality spaces? How do you use um, mixed reality to storytell a little bit more? I think that's something I feel um, as architects, we probably need to um, be more aware of when we're actually designing these spaces. Uh, and that's something I'm very interested in. I guess I want to really round the corner on this conversation on NFTs, because I know that this was one of the key things Evelyn wanted to talk to you about. Do you have examples in your research of firms that are actually implementing this? Or are we too early to really understand how architecture firms are implementing it? Is it still at the conceptual stage? Oh, no, not at all. I don't think we're at the conceptual stage at all. Um, I do think NFTs... So I think like foundation over the pandemic has, you know, obviously pushed a lot. Um, I feel like within the 12 month, 15 month period, they've launched a lot on what they actually could be doing with the platform. However, I think it's still a marketplace. Architects are still just contributing their digital objects into a marketplace discussion where it's more of an auction of whatever you create, right? I have several colleagues that are actually doing that, um, who are making NFTs. They're doing an OpenSea foundation, like whatever you could find, right? But I think it's still not engaging as what architects are traditionally educated to do, which is engage with community in a physical realm, or perhaps integrate that same technology into, as what we spoke of earlier, working with, um, you know, maybe non-traditional users with the technology. And I think that's still something um, that, again, we if we think beyond building for the 1%, we could start thinking about um, how to engage on the use of social good. The, the Probably the only NFT I really put out was with Welcome to Chinatown as a fundraiser. And I think that's the only time I really did it just because it's where we were creating something obviously digital, but I was working with another artist in LA to kind of make these visual, physical objects so that, you know, they're not only buying into the digital object, but it's, again, it was a 50, 50 split on fundraising because uh, at this current moment, we're still in the pandemic and there's still a lot of, you know, Asian hate around. And so a lot of Chinatowns, especially in New York city, a lot of businesses have been suffering. So I'm still trying to figure out personally how to utilize um, digital currency as a means of fundraising or like, Know, putting out objects, not just for the sake of putting out objects. Um, but in terms of other architects, I do think there are other architects are trying to use different types of platforms beyond Bitcoin, ETH, and like, you know, 
um, different types of currency. And they're, they're exploring it at a very different level. I think one of it is exploring at a level of like, how do we find the type of digital currency that could be uh, better for the environment, like use less energy to consume. And this is where the data center discussion comes in. Um, and, you know, how do we mine it that makes new builds more sustainable? And I, I think there are architects that are interested in that, but obviously this comes hand in hand with um, computer engineers and also physical engineers to build the infrastructure for it. But El Salvador obviously is, you know, one of the foreground countries that are like pushing for geothermal to build an actual Bitcoin society, right? Um, whether or not that works locally is another issue um, because the, ad the adaptation for local um, consumers and also local citizens, the currency is so much in flux, it's kind of difficult to buy things and trade with. So I think it's still at an early stage on that level, but whether or not we're actually using the infrastructural system to think of ways to engage with actual physical communities. I don't think that is new. Um, I just think that there are better ways, not only using NFTs, but there are better ways to use blockchain systems and smart contracts to engage on other fields that architects are prompting more urgency to engage with. And if we're going to use NFTs as um, a Trojan horse to kind of enter the field, so be it. I don't think, you know, virtual is going anywhere. I don't think blockchain systems are going anywhere. I, I do think as we proceed more into e-contracts and, and, and smart contracts, that's just going to be more in our day-to-day -day practice. I mean, when was the last time you used a DocuSign? I'm sure quite recently. So I think that type of culture that's integrated into our day-to-day -day will, as people see the benefits of having a more transparent transaction um, within our field, it's it's going to be, you know, easier for people to understand like, oh, okay, having something on the blockchain isn't a bad thing. It's it's not necessarily, you know, a, a, a thing that we should be worried about. This conversation is something that I'm like on the learning curve with for sure and trying to understand. And uh, it's a lot of new information. I'm sure others feel that way too. And so, I, you know, I want to come to this conclusion question, trying to distill it down, Wendy, from your own words. Like if you had to really choose, you've, you've talked about a lot of ideas in this episode, but if you had to make one main point um, or share one main lesson on change uh, that you think architects could grab onto following this conversation that could help them um, in moving the industry forward, what would that one main core idea be? If architecture could be a form of cultural ledger, then we could probably start interpreting that cultural ledger as a means of like moving forward with extra legal or extra economical societal contributions. Um, and that's something I think is is something that as architects, we should think, again, as a way of creating space, as a form of physical currency in that sense. Thank you to ArcIT for their support of this episode. Don't forget to visit getarcit.com pd to set up your free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment or custom solutions for your design firm. Thank you again to our podcast partner, Monograph. Learn how Monograph can help you take control of your firm's financial health. Follow the link in our show notes 
or visit practiceofarchitecture.com backslash monograph so that monograph knows that you heard about them from us. Hi, Disruptors. If you like the content from today's show, you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast. Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers, and others in our community at practiceofarchitecture.com slash community. Our social media handle is at practiceofarch. That's at practiceofarch. We love to hear from you. Drop us a note to say hello. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.